0: Well, good morning. Uh, If you do not know me, my name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. It's a great honor to uh, be with you this morning. I look forward to preaching God's Word. Uh, Before I do, I want to ask you to please pray for me this week. Um, I am preaching next week at Mercy Hill, our sister church in Fredericksburg. Um, And I've... I have not preached there before. It's easy to preach for people you know and that you know that love you. It's different thinking to go to a place where you do not know the people. Please pray for me this week. You know, it started as a cooler conversation, a water cooler conversation. It was 1995. And I was standing around chatting with three of my friends in South Africa In the break room during a lunch break, when one of us, I'm not naming names, said, Why don't the four of us next year run the Comrades Ultra Marathon? Perspective The Comrades Ultra Marathon is a serious marathon for serious long distance runners. It is a grueling 55-mile run that starts in Durban, which is at the East Coast. And you end many, many miles from there up in the mountains in Pietermaritzburg. And rather than one of us had the wit to say, let's stop the foolish talk and eat another (laughs) doughnut, it's not what we did we started stirring one another on in our plan to do this and before you know it we were drawing up a contract believe it over the next 11 months i ran hundreds of miles in preparation and then was the big day june 16 1996 this was my number I stood there on that starting line, the only one of those four people. (laughs) Yeah, don't laugh. The only one. Luckily, I had with me my brother and my brother-in-law. And at 6 a.m. that morning, the cannon sounded, and off we went, 15,000 runners. We, uh had 11 hours to run that 55 miles and not die. (laughs) The first 26 miles, which is a marathon, is literally almost all uphill. And so when I got to that place, I really had serious doubts about my own sanity. After a few more miles was the halfway mark, Drummond, and there I had two feelings. I felt so happy. I've made it halfway. And I had a dreadful feeling. I feel like dying and I'm only halfway. <laughs> but the Lord sustained me that day. And I finished. I finished that race in 11 hours. Yeah. I finished in 10 hours and 6 minutes that race. What's even more crazy is I ran it two more times. (laughs) Something must be wrong. But every one of those 15,000 people who started that race that morning did not finish that race that day. Many people stopped along the way because of fatigue or because of injury. And specifically noticeable to me were the last 20-ish miles, there were these rescue vans that slowly started driving along the runners. And at any point, a runner could flag them down if they could not make it any further. And they would come to you and ask you, Are you sure you want to get in this van? And if you said yes, you wanted to get in this van, they would rescue you. And the first thing that they would do is they would take a big sharpie and they'll do that. It signaled to everybody that you did not finish this race, that you did not endure to the end, that you were not going to receive your reward a medal. And inside that van, I saw some of the most defeated looking, crushed in spirit people I've ever seen. They've trained for months. They've traveled many miles. They, they, they made it there and they ran in this race, but they did not make it to the end. And the mere fact that they were running in this race did not guarantee that they were going to make it to the end of this race. I hope you understand the close correlation between that marathon and the Christian life. You and I are, according to Hebrews 12, running a race That we have to run with endurance to the end. If we are to, what Peter says in 1 Peter 1, verse 9, obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. This is a constant theme through all of Scripture that we have to endure to the end. Let me read you four quick scriptures. Matthew 24 and verse 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. James 1, 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Hebrews 3 and verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. In 2 Timothy 2 verse 12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Endurance in an ultra marathon is both an endurance against something, against the pain and the exhaustion that sets in. And it is endurance towards something. It is a striving towards that finish line. And similarly, endurance in the Christian life is an endurance against something. It's an endurance against slowly drifting away from Christ into worldliness. And it is in endurance of striving, striving towards Christ in whom our lives are hidden and in whom all joys abound. And this morning we will see in Colossians 3 verses 1 through 4 that the way to endure to the end in the Christian life is by setting our minds on Christ Christ. For when we do, he will become our true treasure and joy. Read with me, please, Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Pray with me before I start. Father, we thank you that we can come to this amazing passage this morning and that we can sit and hear your word. Thank you that your word is true. Thank you that your word changes us. I pray, Lord, this morning that you will please take my broken words and that you will make it life. I pray that you will open all of our ears to hear you speak to us. Help us, Lord, to see the truth of what you want to communicate to us through this passage. Will you be merciful to us this morning, Lord, to open our eyes, to open our ears. Help us to know how can we endure to the end so that we can reign with you. We need that. Help us now, Lord. In Christ's name, we pray. We're going to start by looking at a warning that's in the middle of this, and at the end of verse two, where Paul says, "Set your minds on the things that are above." And here is the the warning: not on things that are on earth. Remember that Paul is addressing the Christian Colossians and he is teaching them how to live as a result of the supremacy of Christ that he has held up and as a result of the redemptive work of Christ on their behalf. And he desires for them to live in a manner that values Christ, that treasures Christ above all. And he, and he wants them to live in a manner that they will endure to the end to receive the crown of life. And here in these few words, Paul is addressing what is arguably their number one danger and your and my number one danger today. Seduction by this world. And he tells them, do not set your mind on the things of this world. And so he refers here, when he refers to the world, refers to all that is in opposition to God, all that is hostile to God, all that is at enmity to enmity with God. And so what Paul is saying in, in that In that warning is, do not be seduced by, do not be immersed in, and do not fall in love with the values and the pursuits and the endeavors and the joys of this fallen world. Why? Because it will draw you away from where your true joy and your true love and your true pursuits should be, namely Jesus Christ. You see, worldliness aims to deceive you and me into thinking that there is more joy, more peace, more contentment, more wisdom, more life in general in the things of this world than there is in Christ. Worldliness says that you need more than the supreme creator of everything, the supreme sustainer of the universe the lover of your soul, the king of kings, that you need more than him to be satisfied in this life. And it is a lie. And that is the lie that you and I have to fight against because that lie, friends, ultimately will bring separation between you and Christ. There is no loving the world and loving God. If you love the world, if you really love the world, you may pretend to love God, but it will be pretend only. And there will ultimately, on a soul level, be a separation between you and God. And if you think, if there's even an inclination in your mind that you are immune to worldliness, let me pop your bubble and say that it is not true let me remind you of Demas. Demas was a close friend and colleague of Paul. He traveled with Paul and he spread the gospel and strengthened churches. And we see Paul calling him a fellow worker in Philemon, verse 24. And you can only imagine a rock-solid guy. Not many people rose to the level of a fellow worker with Paul. Paul. But then we read some of, probably some of the hardest words Paul ever had to write. In 2 Timothy 4 verse 10. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. What? How did that happen? How did this man go from devoted disciple... To deserter. How did that happen? And the answer is by drifting away from loving Christ to loving the world. Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. But how? Surely this must have been a man with exceptional faith. And here's what we need to know about worldliness. The danger of worldliness. It does not only target those with weak faith. It targets everyone. And here is the danger. It's not something that happens overnight. It is a gradual, subtle, conforming to this world. And a falling in love with this world. Worldliness has a slow and steady pull, like gravity, relentless. And if it has its way, the ultimate result will be that you will love the things of this world more than you love Christ. C.J. Mahaney says in his book, Worldliness, Resisting the Seduction of a Fallen World, worth reading... He says this, it begins with a dull conscience and a listless soul. Sin does not grieve him like it once did. Passion for the Savior begins to cool. Affections grow dim. Excitement lessens for participation in the local church. Eagerness to evangelize starts to wane. Growth in godliness slows to a crawl. In this way, the person who once was passionate for Christ, like Demas, is over time taken captive by sin. Wow. This is drifting away from Christ into worldliness. And so I have to ask you this morning, if you evaluate your own life what are the areas that you are most vulnerable, most likely to being seduced by this fallen world? To drift slowly away from your passion for Christ towards a passion for this thing. And if you, if you, if you want to know how to know these things, ask yourself questions like, What is it that dominates your mind? ...on a regular basis? What constantly fills your thoughts? What are you looking for on the internet in your downtime? What passions do you have? What is the main thing that is all over your conversations with your friends? What most often stirs your heart? Is it a desire or a pleasure for earthly things? Whether games or travel or movies or cars? Is it a desire for more wisdom, worldly wisdom? Is it maybe the draw of pornography? Is it your longing to really be liked by other people? Or is it your unhealthy amazement with everything Hollywood? Or is it stuff? Or the draw of money? or alcohol, or social media. We have to answer that question for ourselves. What are the things that your mind and your thoughts constantly gravitate to other than Christ? Because hear me this morning, church, those things, that thing that you are thinking of right now is your enemy. It clamors for all your affection, for all your time, for all your attention, and eventually for all your worship. It wants you to leave the God you love. And it wants to be your functional God that enjoys all of your pleasures, all of your affections, and all your allegiance. And if we do not go to war against worldliness daily, moment by moment, it will gain real estate in your heart. And over time, that real estate will grow and grow and grow until it has taken over the landscape of your heart. And your love and your passion would have turned away from Christ. And on to this thing that you so love in this world. So how do I endure to the end, Josh? How do I not slowly drift away from my love for Christ into my love for this world? Can Can I maybe manage my sin better? Nope. That thing, that thing that you are thinking about, that wants to entice you, captivate you, seduce you, cannot be managed. And the reason is because it is not primarily a doing thing. Sin is not primarily a something we do wrong. It is a heart issue. Watching less movies will not cure your heart's desire to be satisfied by the wowment of entertainment. Playing less games will not remove your heart's desire for instant gratification as you blow up that city. It is a heart issue. It cannot be managed. But does that mean we don't fight it? Heck yeah, we fight We fight against the sin in our lives and against that passions that want to drag us away from a passion for Christ. We do battle because if we do not, we will drift away from Christ, the one we love. So how do we do battle? That is the question And the answer to that is we fight to make Christ our supreme treasure. That is how we endure to the end. That is how we not drift away from Christ into worldliness. And how we do this is we do this by continually setting our minds on Christ. For when we do He becomes our treasure, our satisfaction, and our joy. And so Paul gives us the answer to this warning not to look to the things on this world. And in verse 1b, in verse 2, he says this. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds... On the things that are above. And so you may ask, what does this mean? What does it mean to set my mind on Christ? It really is not difficult, church. Do this with me. Can you think of an elephant with me? Imagine its big trunk, its big teeth, flapping ears, big body, huge feet congratulations, you just set your mind on an elephant. And so in the same simplistic way, Paul tells us to set our minds on Christ and on the things where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on his attributes. Set your mind on his supremacy on his love for you, on his substitutionary death on the cross for you. Think of those things. On his upholding everything, the entire universe right now, set your mind on his holiness, on his mercy and his forgiveness, on his rule over everything as he sits at the right hand of God. You will never get to a place where there is not infinitely more of Christ to set your mind on. And so during your work day, during your hiking trip, during your workout, and during cutting grass, Paul is exhorting you to make a conscious effort to focus your mind on Christ. To strive to set your mind on the things of Christ on His person, and on His work. You see, the thing is, this does not come naturally to us. Because of our sin nature, what comes naturally to us is to set our minds on one of two things. On the things that we really enjoy doing or seeing, or the things that really troubles us. That's what we naturally set our minds to. And so Paul wisely is telling us, make a conscious effort not to look at the things on this earth, but to set your mind on Christ, to orient your will to seek Christ, to think on, meditate on, and consider Christ. And so you'll think, why, Paul? Why Why is this so important? Well, firstly, because Jesus is worthy. He is worthy of all our meditation and our thoughts and our contemplation and our seeking of Him and our pondering of Him. But also, friends, when you fix your gaze on Christ, when you constantly focus on Him, you know what will happen? He will soon become the treasure of your heart. It is the truth. Just think of anything that you really, really like to do. And the more effort and time you spend doing that thing, the more important it becomes to you. And the more you want to do that. That's the draw of worldliness. But if Christ is what we set our minds to, if he occupies our thoughts He will soon become your treasure and your joy. And do you know what happens with the things of this world? When he becomes our treasure? We sang it earlier. When we turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this world, what? Grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Friends, setting your mind on Christ will result in Christ becoming more glorious in your life and the things of this world, those things that want to seduce you and make you drift away from Christ to become strangely dim in the light of the glory of Christ. This is how we endure to the end. This is how we do battle with worldliness. By consistently and persistently setting our minds on Jesus Christ until He becomes our treasure. And I've experienced some of this, church, in my own life over the past maybe two years. When God in His great mercy helped me to start putting my mind on christ more frequently more deliberately and more consistently he helped me to do that and the more i focused on christ the more i wanted to focus on christ The more I thought about him, the more I wanted to think about him. The more I read his word, the more I wanted to read his word. The more I listened to men preaching the gospel, the more I wanted to listen to men preaching the gospel. And then one day, several months ago, suddenly one day, I realized that some of my worldly passions and desires, the things that really can grip my heart, has become strangely dim. And that Jesus, in my mind, has become more glorious, more amazing, and more real. Please don't hear for a second that I am saying I no longer struggle with sin or worldliness or that I've perfected setting my mind on Christ. But hear me, church, I can tell you from first-hand experience, I have lived this, and I pray it will continue, that setting my mind on Christ regularly has resulted in Christ becoming more glorious. He has become more of a treasure to me, and the world and its lusts has become dimmer in my view. So here's Paul, hear Paul's exhortation this morning, and do it. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated on the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above. For when you do, he will become your true treasure and joy. Paul tells us one more reason why we ought to seek the things above. Why we must set our minds on Christ. It is because of our union with Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection. Look with me at verse 3. He says, you have died and your life is hidden in, with Christ in God. And in verse 1, he says, if then you have been raised with Christ. Remember what Paul called of first importance in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 and 4? This is what he called first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Friend, Jesus who is fully God, the creator of heaven and earth, supreme ruler over all and sustainer of everything, the most holy, the most high, the most glorious God, became a man... And as a man, he endured the same gravitational pull towards sin and worldliness, but he is the only man who ever perfectly endured to the end without sinning. And he did not only endure this world, but he endured the cross, where he represented you and he represented me. Where he took and carried and bore our sin. And where he took the penalty for those sins. And where he died in my place and in your place. And then after three days, he was raised from the dead. Victorious over sin and death. And now he sits on his throne at the right hand of God where he rules all things. And Paul says, brothers and sisters, through faith in Jesus, you have been united to him. Your life is hidden in him. Rejoice in that. You do not live for yourself anymore. You live for Christ. Your life is hidden in him. And because it is hidden in him, it should look different than the people around you whose lives are not hidden in Christ. How should it it look different? By us setting our minds on Christ continually. By making Christ our treasure and our satisfaction. It should be the natural outflow of a life Hidden in Christ. Isn't it good news, church? Your life is in Christ. It is secure in Christ. He's the one who holds you. In Him, you are safe. We see that in verse four, the result and the reward. Paul ends with this amazing promise. Look with me at verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is amazing. Here's the result. It's first a promise that if we continue to set our minds on Christ, if we make him our, our treasure... We will endure. When Christ who is your life appears, you will also appear. It's a promise that if you endure, you will also appear with him. But then look at that last word. It's better than a, it's, it's better than a medal that you get in a, in a race. It's a reward. We are going to appear with Christ. How? In glory. Not only did believers die with Christ, were we buried with Christ, were we made alive with Christ, and are we in Christ, but we will reign with Him in glory. Revelation 3.21 The one who conquers, I will grant him To sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. I don't know about you, friends, but I have a really tough time even wrapping my mind around that. That because of Christ's life, because of his obedience because of his willingness to go to the cross on behalf of me, because of his resurrection, because of nothing that I have done, this sinner who was bound for hell will reign with him in glory forever. And if you are a Christian here this morning, a true believer in Christ, this will be your reward. Set your mind on the truth of that also. When you go through sickness, remember that. When you go through all kinds of trials, remember that. When people reject you because of your faith in Jesus Christ, remember that your reward is not here on this earth. Don't look for it here. Soon and very soon, you are going to reign with Christ in glory forever. There is no better news. There is no better reward that anyone can ever give you. If you hold fast to Christ, you will reign with him in glory forever. If you are not a Christian, this can become your reward also. I would love to talk to you about what a Christian is, what the Christian life means, and how you can become a Christian. Please seek me out and ask me about that. Church, there are only two possible outcomes when you run a race. Either you endure and you finish, or you do not endure and you do not finish. There's no third option. You make it to the finish line, or you don't make it to the finish line. Those are the options. And here's my plea to you this morning. We need each other. We need each other to endure to the end. I need you desperately, church, to help me to endure to the end. I beg of you this morning, if you see my affection for Christ waning, or you see my affection and and my desire for the world increasing, please do not be quiet. Please, Please tell me what you are observing. Do not think for a second that it is a loving thing that when you see a brother or sister wane in their passion for Christ or increase in their passion for worldliness, that that staying quiet is a loving thing to do. It is not. The loving thing to do is also the hard thing to do. If you see me not treasuring Christ or you see me running after the world, gently confront me. I'm asking you for this. And not only confront me, but then help me to see Jesus. Help me to see him as glorious and as worthy and as enough to satisfy me completely. Church, that's what we are called to do for each other. We are called to help one another to run this race. This marathon has a very unique name. It's the Comrades Marathon. And this is the one marathon where I've seen most than ever runners helping one another. Especially in the finish, last hundreds of yards, people carrying one another. Literally, physically, Groups coming together, carrying an athlete who can no more. This is a picture of what the church should be like. When you see me stumble, help me. Carry me. Tell me about Christ. Tell me how good he is. Show me how faithful he is. Help me to make him the treasure that I want him to be. I pray, church, that you will run this race the Christian life with endurance, that you will seek Christ continually, that he will become the treasure of your heart, and that one day you will hear these words from Jesus. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of this world. Oh, I pray that that will be the truth for each one here, that you will run and endure and see Christ and reign with him forever. Amen. Pray with me as the band comes up. Father, we thank you that your word is clear. And your word is true. Father, we need you today to help us to see the sin that easily entices us, to recognize those sins and to be willing to fight against them. And we need you today, Lord, to help us to see Jesus. To set our minds on Christ. To set our minds on Christ. And everything about Christ. Father I pray for me. And for the church today. That you will enlarge our capacity. To daily. Moment by moment. Think of you. Set our minds on you. Think on how. How you have saved us. Think on your holiness. Think on your beauty. And as we do, I pray, Lord, that you will become more and more a treasure on our hearts. And that we will seek you diligently. And that we will find you. And I pray, Lord, that you will give us hope to do this that you will give us strength to endure. I pray, Lord, that no one here will fall by the wayside. I pray that you will protect the men and women in this church, that they will not give up, that they will not be seduced by this world to drift away from love for you into love for this world. I pray that you will give us endurance and strength And that we will make it to the end and that there will be a day when we get to that finish line and we hear your words, good and faithful servant. But Lord, we know that we will not be able to do that without you. And so we ask for strength this morning. Will you help us endure to the end? We pray in Christ's name.